Author Media presents Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, the professor of book marketing, Thomas Umstead Jr., and today we're going to talk about how readers decide to buy books and how to get them to pick your book. One of the things uh, unique about this podcast is that we don't just talk about tactics to sell more books, uh, although we do talk about a lot of tactics to sell more books. But from time to time, we also talk about marketing fundamentals. You can understand why certain tactics work, why they may not work for you, and if and when they will work for you. If you understand the marketing fundamentals, if you understand the philosophy behind the tactics, you will be so much more effective and you'll fall prey to far fewer uh, bamboozles by people who don't know what they're talking about. These fundamentals episodes uh, have a special marker on them. We call them Marketing 101. We're going back to what you would learn in a Marketing 101 classroom. So in this sense, I really am putting on my Professor of Marketing tweed jacket and my Professor of Marketing pipe and getting to the fundamentals. But we talk about those fundamentals applied to your book. And I'm excited about this episode because it applies to everyone, indie, traditional, uh, fiction, nonfiction, even children's books benefit from understanding how readers make buying decisions. You could also call this the customer buying journey or sometimes called the buyer's journey. It's like the hero's journey in a sense, except it's the journey that the customer takes. And as you understand that journey, you understand the steps that they take, you can understand how to influence uh, that journey so that they end up in your book instead of in somebody else's book or in addition to somebody else's book. Now, some authors think that they're special, that somehow the fundamentals of marketing don't apply, and these authors are wrong. <laughs> the longer I work with authors, and I've worked with authors for a long time, the more I see how much the fundamentals apply, now more than ever before, especially in a time of rapid technological change, the fundamentals are actually proving themselves even more important than they were back in the day. Uh, it's really, don't think that because technology exists, somehow human behavior has changed in any significant way. Humans are the same. Humans don't change uh, very quickly. And at the end of a computer, is another human being. It's really easy to forget that. Uh, there's only H2H. There's only human to human, ultimately. Technology may be in between, uh, but it's not that much different than just interacting directly. So in this episode, I'll be using the term customer uh, because you haven't earned them as a reader yet. So they'll become a reader at the end of the journey. And I will be focusing on this episode on the uh, in-person physical uh, journey, but the steps are really similar for the online journey. I may do in the future an episode specifically for the online journey, but I, I want you to understand the customer journey. And so we're going to go to the physical bookstore and learn how to do this. And this is important because... You can't force people to buy your book. This is the immutable fact of marketing. Marketing is never more than persuasion. There's no gun to people's heads forcing them to buy your book. It's the frustrating thing as a marketing director. So I was a marketing director of a publishing company. And unlike with other types of jobs, right, you can force the computer to have right code. You can't force buyers to buy. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And so it's about helping people make better buying decisions and helping people make um, the right buying decisions. But ultimately, you're only helping. <laughs> you are not making the decision for them. And while many readers look for different things along this journey, the path that they walk is really similar. 
All right, so let's go through the customer journey and we'll start with step one. The customer decides to visit the bookstore. So this is a huge step, right? Half of Americans never take this step. They never decide to go visit a bookstore. When they get up in the morning, they're like, you know what I should do today? I should go to a Barnes and Noble, buy me a coffee and read a book. They never think that. Uh, so you're own, we're not talking to everyone as marketers of books, as authors, you're not talking to everyone. You're only talking to the kind of people who read books. Now I should say there are two kinds of bookstores. I'll put them into two categories. There's destination bookstores, bookstores like Barnes & Noble, where people are driving to the bookstore specifically to buy the book. And then also bookstores that I'll call interruption bookstores. This is the bookstore at the airport bookstore or uh, the grocery store book spinner. So you often see spinners of books or placements of books at the checkout of a grocery store. These are um, book sales places that interrupt your normal day. Right, you're going along the airport, minding your own business, and there's a bookstore calling you. And you're like, oh, I have a long flight ahead of me. Maybe I will visit this bookstore I didn't wake up this morning intending to visit. No one you know, goes to the airport for the purposes of visiting the bookstore, unless perhaps they're an author doing a um, signing uh, sprint where they go from airport bookstore to airport bookstore signing their books, which can be an effective strategy, actually, uh, if you're the kind of author who has... Uh, the kind of books that airport bookstores already stock. All right, so let's talk about the different kinds of bookstores and what they tell you about the reader, because uh, you're not going to be in every kind of bookstore, and you don't necessarily even want to be in every kind of bookstore because different bookstores attract different uh, readers. So the first is what I call the big box bookstore. It's the Barnes & Noble and the other really large uh, bookstores. And, you know, the people who visit here are general readers. They're people who are coming specifically looking for their next great read. Uh, they're not necessarily coming having already decided what they're going to read. So there's a certain kind of person who already has decided, I want to read such and such book by such and such author. And they go to the store, they buy just that book, and then they leave. These are kind of mission-minded shoppers. In, in retail in general, this is men more likely shop this way, where they go in, they buy just the thing they want, and then they leave. They're not like browsing. It's kind of the stereotypical way that men shop, and it's why retail tends to be more geared towards women. But there are men who browse, and there are women who are you know mission-minded shoppers. So while that's a general tool and kind of a heuristic that marketers have shared with each other for 100 years, it's not a universally true uh, principle, but the kind of people visiting a big box store looking for the next read, and maybe they're also coffee drinkers, right? The coffee shop attached to the bookstore is a key draw, right? People haven't yet decided that they're going to buy a book. That's too much commitment, but they'll commit to a $5 cup, uh, cup of coffee. <laughs> Not ready to commit to a $10 book or a $20 book, but they'll commit to a $5 cup of coffee. And the next kind of bookstore is an Amazon bookstore. So Amazon has uh, brick and mortar bookstores. The primary people who visit these are prime readers. And I did a whole episode breaking down Amazon physical bookstores, what they mean about the industry, what they mean for you. You can listen to that episode at 141. Uh, so I'm not going to talk too much about that here. If you're curious about Amazon bookstores, they're very fascinating. They have a completely different approach to bookstores than any of the other kinds of bookstores fundamentally different. It's really, really fascinating. All right. The next kind of bookstore is an indie or specialty bookstore. The kind of person here has already narrowed down what they want. They already have an idea often of what they want, uh, but they haven't necessarily picked the book yet. And then of course, used bookstores attract budget buyer, uh, budget readers. Airport bookstores appeal uh, mostly to wealthy readers. So uh, there's a really high correlation with how wealthy someone is and how much they fly. 
Uh, so people who make you know six figure um, household income travel a lot and they fly a lot. People who make over five hundred thousand dollar household income fly all the time. <laughs> They're constantly in airports, both for work and for pleasure. Whereas uh, people are on lower and lower budgets fly less. So that's kind of the most important thing to realize about airport bookstores. They're not hitting the general population like say the bookstore at a Walmart would hit a very different population. Walmart's got, you know, sells a lot of books. They have uh, a very popular book aisle in in a lot of Walmarts. Although interestingly, Walmart doesn't share their sales data, at least as far as I know. Uh, So no one really knows other than the publishers of the particular books that Walmart stocks, uh, how many uh, copies Walmart sells, and they're not registered in any of the bestseller lists, which is very fascinating to me. Because I suspect that if Walmart shared their data, different books would be on the bestseller list than are actually listed on the bestseller list because the kinds of people who shop at Walmart are different than the kinds of people who shop at an airport bookstore that does report its sales. Uh, And then finally, we have uh, grocery store book spinners. We already talked about these, but these target infrequent readers, the kind of person who doesn't buy a lot of books. And, uh, you know, maybe they only buy one or two books a year. And they typically buy Really, really popular number one best-selling books and really specific nonfiction books that solve specific problems that they have. Those are kind of the two uh, categories that they fit in. And there's also this kind of gray area of books that are kind of magazines, uh, but they're also kind of books, but they're like magazine-sized, which is um, a fascinating type of book that we could talk about in a future episode if you're interested. My guess is uh, none of you listening or very few of you listening are trying to write a magazine-style book. All right, so they've picked a store to visit, and which stores you reach out to, which stores your publisher reaches out to, uh, needs to be conscious, right? If you're writing a business book, an airport bookstore is key, right? Because the kinds of business leaders that travel are the kinds of, or business people that travel are the kinds of people who have influence, Right, you have a CEO of a company and she's traveling. She sees your book in an airport bookstore. She buys a copy and then she has all of her managers in her company buy copies as well and read them and makes it required reading. And so that one sale at an airport bookstore turns into you know, a dozen sales online. Uh, whereas if you're writing a different kind of book that's not targeting that audience, airport bookstores may not be as important. And I'll also include train station bookstores. Uh, I'm from Texas where we don't really have train stations, but I traveled a lot in Europe and I realized that uh, there's a lot of train stations in Europe and they all have bookstores in them. Uh, So uh, I'm less familiar with the kinds of people demographically who visit uh, European train stations or even train stations in the parts of the United States that people, where people travel by rail. All right. So step two, uh, the, so the customer has gone into the bookstore. Now they pick a shelf or a section to visit. And if you as an author are on the wrong shelf, your book will appear before the wrong kind of customers and it will fail. And this is a very conscious, strategic decision where to put your book. So Johnson & Johnson baby powder in our grocery store is in the baby items aisle. It's with the rattles and the other really expensive baby items. Whereas all of the other baby powders are in the diaper aisle (laughs) where they're less expensive and they're compared to less expensive things. It was a conscious choice by Johnson & Johnson to be put in a different aisle than the other baby powders. They're not trying to compete on price. They're the most expensive baby powder you can buy or one of the most expensive baby powders you can buy, but it's not a price competition if they're the only one you see, if that's the aisle you're going to. 
If you go to the produce section of a grocery store, you're going to see fruit juices there that are in, often in a refrigerated, um, some sort of refrigerator that's open. And, you know, they'll have all of these words on the front about how healthy they are. Although if you flip them to the back, you'll find that in most cases they have just as much sugar as soda. <laughs> uh, they're just getting the, that sugar from fruit. Uh, and yet because they are placed in the produce aisle, they're able to sell at a premium. So two to five times more expensive per ounce than soda. Uh, and they benefit from a health halo, not because they are healthy, but because they're in the same section of the store as the kale, which actually is healthy. So um, where your position in store is very strategic. And when you're writing a book, often minor tweaks to the book can shift where in the story you get placed, right? Like the age of the protagonist can decide whether or not your book is eligible to be placed in the young adult section. Maybe you want to be in the young adult section. Maybe you don't want to be in the young adult section. I'm not saying that there's a right answer here because uh, there's no absolute right answer, right? Books succeed in every shelf. The, the key though is that you pick a um, shelf that attracts the kind of readers who already want to read the kind of book that you're writing. This is why the shelving instructions on the back of a book are so important. And I'll say this is often one of the most common mistakes indie authors make with their physical books is that they leave this section off. They often don't know to do it, especially if they haven't listened to our episode about book covers. They don't know about shelving instructions. And it's how I can often tell at a glance whether a book is self-published or not. Because even though the cover may be beautiful and the typesetting is well done, if it doesn't have shelving instructions... Uh, you know it's an indie book because no traditional published book will for, you know, leave this off because it's so important. And the shelving instructions basically is just an instruction to the minimum wage person working at the, at the bookstore what shelf to put the book on. <laughs> so, and, and this is just a suggestion. The bookstore can put the book anywhere they want, <laughs> right? But in most cases, the person taking the books out of the box is just going to follow the instructions on the back of the book. So if the book says put it in uh, contemporary romance, it's going to put it in contemporary romance. Or if it says put it in literary fiction, it's going to put it in literary fiction. Those two parts of the store can attract very different kinds of readers. Uh, and for books that are not necessarily that different, right? They often may have the same kinds of themes. I mean, they're different, but not as different as you might think. And you can very easily shift a book from one to another depending on who you're trying to reach. Now, placement, like where your book is placed in the store, both in the online store and the offline store, uh, is one of the five P's of marketing. So uh, this is one of the like, fundamental aspects of marketing. It's really important, and we cover it in our five P's of marketing episode, which is one of our foundational episodes, which you can listen to. It's back in episode 61. So I think we did this in 2014. It's that old of an episode. Um, we don't need to redo it, though, because nothing's changed. These are timeless principles. Um, in the last 50 years, the four P's of marketing have not changed, and one P has been added. <laughs> and that's probably the only P to be added in my lifetime, is my guess. All right, so now let's talk about step three. The customer looks at the shelf. So the customer's walked into the store, they pick the store, they pick the section of the store they're going to. Then they walk up to a shelf full of books, and they look at the shelf full of books. And the books are, depending on the bookstore, either face out, spine out, or it's a mix of face out books and spine out books. So at an Amazon bookstore, 100% of the books are face out. 
at a used bookstore, 100 of the books, 100% of the books are going to be spine out. At a Barnes and Noble, it's typically a mix. So the popular books, the books that the bookstore has stocked a bunch of will be face out, right? Because there's the book that's face out and the five or six books behind it all on the shelf because they're anticipating to sell a lot of copies. And then they have many more books that are spine out only. So you have to earn face-out status, right? No one's brand new book is you know, on their first day is put uh, face-out unless they're already super famous for doing something else. So when Michelle Obama's book came out, her book was face-out, facing the door of the bookstore. In fact, not even just in the United States. When we were traveling Europe, so speaking at a conference in Europe, we were walking by the European bookstores and Michelle Obama's book was face out towards the door, even in a European um, train station bookstore. So she's that level of celebrity. Uh, You're not that level of celebrity, right? It's very rare to be the wife of the United States president. You know, at any given time, there's only, you know, a handful alive. Uh, And so you're going to have to first kind of fight it out in the trenches with the other spine out books. Right? So there's a lot more books that are spine out. And when your book is spine out, all people see is your title. Uh, your book has to kind of rise or fall based off of the title of your book. And uh, there's other ways of standing out, right? There's some strategies you can use here. There's one company that has built a million dollar empire based off of working really well with spine out books. And those are the dummies books, right? They're bright yellow, they pop, right? They're very iconic, they're very noticeable. So if you're in a nonfiction section, there's going to be the dummies book that's the big yellow book and they work really well spine out. And that's part of the reason why they've done so well is that they aren't, hoping to be face out. They don't need to be face out to work because the title of the book, Topic for Dummies, right? Computers for Dummies, works. The title makes a promise that resonates with the reader and it's it's either something that you want help with. It's like, yes, I want help with PHP. PHP for Dummies, that sounds great. Or, or you don't. But it, it, it's a book that works by now. Uh, also, sometimes... Uh, books stores will put reviews underneath the book. They'll, it'll either be a handwritten review or sometimes it's a computer-generated review. So like Amazon bookstores, it's algorithmically generated. But for a lot of independent bookstores, they'll have the staff will write reviews of the books that they've read. And being one of the books that has a review underneath it is is really powerful. It's potentially even better than being face out. And if you're curious about how to do that and how to interact with bookstores so that the staff of the bookstore likes you and recommends your book, we have an episode on that, episode 195, How to Work with Bookstores. Okay, so let's talk about step four. The customer notices a specific book and pulls it from the shelf. So they've walked into the store, they've picked their section, they've picked their shelf. One book jumps out at them for whatever reason. They like the title, uh, they like the uh, subtitle, they like the you know color of the spine. For whatever reason, they pull it from the shelf. And I will say, when it comes to the title, uh, if you're just getting started, books are purchased based off of the title. And we have, I actually have not done an episode on how to pick a good title for your book. I was stunned when I was putting together the outline for this talk that we don't have an episode on that. So expect an episode soon. Um, but we do have an episode on how to test 
if you have multiple title ideas, which is the best title idea? It's episode 172, how to test um, titles using the split test method with Facebook ads. It's an inexpensive way to know for sure which titles work best. Now, uh, like I said, though, the title doesn't matter for everyone. If you're an established author, it's all about your brand. And it doesn't really matter what title somebody like John Grisham or Stephen King uses. People buy the book based off of the author's name. And you can know who these authors are because the font of their name is bigger than the font of the title. Because people buy it because it's a Stephen King book, not because it's a specific Stephen King book. This is what makes them big name authors because their name is bigger than their title. So uh, just realize that the rules shift a little bit once you get famous. But again, while you're battling in the trenches, while you're working your way into that level of status, having a good title, having your book pulled from the shelf is really key. Uh, the next step, once they've pulled your book off the shelf, what do they do? They flip it to the front of the book and they look at your cover. Now, this step is skipped if your book is face out. Obviously, they will have already seen your cover if it's a face out book. But we're going to assume that your book is in the trenches uh, with the spine out. And they look at the cover for, let's say, two to five seconds. They don't spend a lot of time on the cover. And yet in those two to five seconds, they often make a decision <laughs> whether or not to, if they want to learn more about your book. Whether, sometimes they purchase it just off the cover or more often than not, right? People will pull and look at dozens of covers at a bookstore and they'll only buy a handful of books. So most covers are rejected most of the time. Having a good cover is key to success here. And the question that they're asking, especially for genre fiction, is does this book look like the kind of books I've enjoyed in the past? People aren't looking for some revolutionarily new cover. They're looking for a safe bet. There's a certain amount of psychological guilt people take on when they buy a book and don't read it. <laughs> and they feel like it's their fault. They don't uh, finish the book because of the way they were raised, or the education that they had. They feel obligated to finish every book, even though they know they don't finish most of the books they buy. So they're really discriminating. They're really careful about buying books, um, more so than other products. You know, people buy tons of clothes they don't wear, and they rarely feel guilty about that. <laughs> They're like, um, at least not guilty in the same way that they feel guilty about not finishing a book. Or they wear the outfit only once, and they don't feel bad about that. Whereas if they only read the first few chapters of a book and then quit, they may feel a little guilty. So they're trying to avoid that guilt, and they're trying to decide if this is the kind of book that they would enjoy or not. If it doesn't look like the kind of book they've enjoyed in the past, there's still a chance to win them over. And the question that they're also asking is, is this the kind of book that I might enjoy in the future? It is really hard to win on the second question. This is what um, the top graphic designers at the big traditional publishers are able to pull off occasionally. But as often as they succeed, they fail many more times if they're trying to do something revolutionary with a book. You're much safer with a book cover kind of staying to the tropes and staying to the things that are known to work in terms of book sales, especially online, especially in genre fiction, rather than trying to do something revolutionary. If the last, if you're writing a dragon book and the last 10 best-selling books all had a dragon on the cover, don't put a guy holding a sword on the cover. It's probably not going to work for you. Put a dragon on the cover. There's a reason why uh, military science fiction either has a spaceship or a space marine. Uh, on the cover. 
It's because those are the things that work. Those are the things that sell books. Uh, we have a bunch of episodes on covers. Um, we have episode 106, 10 things every book cover needs. Episode 107, book cover mistakes that can sabotage your marketing. Uh, and I'll say episode six is one, 106 is one of our most popular episodes of all time. I know authors that regularly recommend this episode to anyone they know who's uh, going independent. And then episode 199, how to create a design brief for your cover that is helpful even for traditionally published authors. Putting together a design brief can help you as a traditionally published author. All right, it's time for step six. They've pulled your book off the shelf, they've looked at the cover, and they still are with you. They haven't said no to you yet. So the next thing they do, typically, is they flip the book over to the back. This is where they see the blurb. Uh, often the blurb is the very first top thing at the back. The, the way the back cover is structured can vary and you will kind of want to lead with your strengths here. So if you're writing a nonfiction book and your bio is really driving the credibility of the book, maybe you'll put your bio at the top, but usually you put a blurb here. And um, to, if you're independently publishing, don't be afraid to hire this out. Writing blurbs is really difficult. It's really key, not just on the back cover of your book, but this is also what shows up on your book page on Amazon. And if this is weak, which it often is when you write it yourself, because it's hard to read the label when you're standing inside of the bottle. Uh, if this is weak, it really torpedoes your sales because you know they may have liked your title and they may have liked your cover. They flip it over the back. The blurb isn't compelling. They put the book back on the shelf. And we have some episodes to help with this. Episode 111, how to write best-selling back cover copy. And episode 189, how to craft a compelling elevator pitch for your book. So elevator pitches are different from blurbs, but a lot of the principles of what makes for a good elevator pitch also make for a good blurb. And they'll often be very similar uh, to each other. Uh, then another thing they see on the back of the book is your book's price. So um, price is another one of the five P's of marketing. And these are the only two I'm going to give you in this episode. Uh, so to find out what the other P's are, you have to listen to episode 61 and how to use them. Uh, again, marketing 101. This is the quintessential marketing 101 episode is the five P's of marketing. Uh, we do have a specific episode on uh, episode 201, how to price your ebook. We haven't done an episode on pricing your paper book, but I have an episode in the works that will hit on pricing. Uh, so th expect that early next year, which seems like so far away, early next decade, I could say. And yes, only a few weeks away. It's kind of crazy to think. Um, this is also where uh, the reader's going to see your top endorsements. Uh, is, so often authors will feature one or two of their very best endorsements on the back cover. This is an optional element, but it can be really effective, especially if the endorsement is by someone that the reader or customer has already heard of. That's the key. It doesn't really matter what they say. The words in the endorsement don't really matter. Um, what matters is who is doing the endorsement. Um, all right, this is also where they're going to see your author photo and author bio. And while it's embarrassing that we've not done an episode on how to pick a good book title, we've done a bunch of episodes on these. So we have episode 79, how to write a crazy cool author bio, and episode 98, seven tips for best-selling author portraits. I also have some articles on authormedia.com where you can see photos and you can get instructions on how to work with a photographer, what to tell them, what questions to ask, how to find a good photographer that really help you have a strong photo. Uh, a surprising number of readers judge a book based off the photo of the author. So you owe it to yourself to have a photo that puts you in your best light. And it's not about being young and beautiful. 
that's a misnomer. It's about having a good photo, which is different than being young and beautiful. You can have be you can look young and beautiful in your photo and it actually hurt you potentially. Um, there's a lot more to a good author photo uh, than that. It's, it's much more complicated. And if you think it's just about being pretty or being handsome, you really need to listen to those episodes. All right, so step seven. They've looked at the back cover of your book. They're get, hopefully, curiosity is building as they're walking through these steps. Right? They've taken all of these steps. They've led them to this moment. What do they do next? They open the book. This is the moment of truth. The first time the quality of your writing matters. So we talk a lot about how important writing is, the quality of writing, especially for fiction. And this is where that comes into play. Now, here's the important part. If you had not gotten them to say yes on the six steps up to this, it doesn't matter how good your writing is. If they don't pull your book off the shelf, they'll never read your writing. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if your writing is amazing or if it's terrible, they won't know if you haven't convinced them to get here. This is why marketing is so important. This is why all of the strategy that goes to making sure you're getting people to say yes for all of these steps uh, is so important because until they crack open that book, until they take a look at the actual words on the page, they will never know if they like your writing or not. And uh, depending on the book and the reader, they may flip to different sections. Let's kind of walk through the, di the different kinds of readers, where they may flip to and kind of what the strategy is. Uh, so for fiction, uh, especially for novels, uh, the most common place that people flip to is the first page. Uh, sometimes they'll pick a random page in the middle. So there's different kinds of readers and there's a certain kind of reader who will flip to the last page. Um, most aren't that. There, I mean, there's a certain, anyway, I'm not going to get into the, that's a, that's very rare. If you're the kind of person who flips to the very last page and reads the last paragraph, I'm curious as to why. Feel free to leave a comment in the Facebook group because uh, I always find those kinds of people really fascinating. Uh, but for the most, for most readers for of fiction, they're reading that first book or that first page in that first paragraph. And this is why that first page has got to start so strong. Uh, because it's not just introducing your story, it's selling the rest of the book. So you want to start your novel off with a bang. That doesn't mean that you're dropping a dead body, right? There's a lot of ways of starting your book off with a bang, and there's different ways of doing that depending on different genres. But there's a reason why all of the craft books put so much emphasis on this first page. And you want to read those craft books. You want to learn the craft because whether it's the first page they're reading or some random page in the middle, your writing has got to hold up. And there's a certain kind of, I think, more sophisticated reader who will flip to a uh, random page in the middle, partly because they they aren't they are suspicious that the first page may not be a good representative sample of the rest of the book. So you need to ha write an amazing first page, and then you need to write the rest of the book that's just as good. <laughs> so the whole book has got to stand up to that level of quality uh, for fiction. For nonfiction, uh, the quality of the craft is way less important, at least in terms of like how the words are constructed and how good the writing is. Uh, the key where people often flip in nonfiction is to the table of contents, especially for non-memoir nonfiction. Uh, memoir, um, people tend to engage memoir more like fiction. Uh, but for nonfiction, that table of contents is really important. And the pro tip here is you need to write compelling chapter titles. Each, uh, the, a lot of read authors think that the purpose of a chapter title is to describe the content of the chapter, and that's not true. Uh, the purpose of a chapter title is to sell the content of the chapter. It's got to convince the reader to read the chapter. Because if all you do is describe it and they are like, oh, that doesn't seem interesting, 
that chapter has failed. <laughs> you have to convince people that it's worth it to drink the water. You're leading them to water and you're hoping that they'll drink it. Uh, and, and this is also where typesetting comes into place. So typesetting isn't that important for fiction. People are mostly there for the story and they kind of want the words to disappear so they can watch the movie in their mind. Whereas for nonfiction, having visual elements that, you know, things that make the book easier to flip through, uh, to skim and to scan, uh, make your book more appealing. This is another area where the dummies books are really strong and have very advanced typesetting. They have lots of callouts and tips and underlines and they're very easy to kind of flip through and get uh, the big, the gist of something and then you can kind of dive in deeply, which is how people engage in nonfiction. They don't read it like a novel or a lot of people don't read a nonfiction like a novel where they start on page one, then they read page two. They're flipping all around and they're in and out of that table of contents all the time. So you want uh, to woo them, <laughs> right? Be like, hey, this is the book that's easy to engage. It's not just a pile of words. Uh, it's, it's easy. So headings, bullets, other sorts of visual elements. It does add cost to the typesetting. You have to pay more uh, to your typesetter for this, but it can totally be worth it. All right, so they flipped open to the page. They have read whatever they are going to read, you know, whether they are the person who reads the last paragraph or the first paragraph. Now is the time where they make a buying decision. So the first of two decisions they're going to make. So if the customer has said yes all the way through this process, um, hopefully they will then go on to decide to buy your book. And if you've really grabbed them by the neck in that first page and they already care about your character um, that you've introduced in that first page, you've got them. They want to know what's going to happen next. They've read the blurb. They have an idea of where the story's going. They've gotten the first little bit and now they're hooked. Now we'll say customers can exit this journey at any point. And usually when they do this, it's when they say no, right? They looked at your cover and it just wasn't doing it for them. It looked like a boring book or too stressful or you know, whatever their criteria is for their genre. And they said no to your book. And different readers are looking for different things and different covers, which is why there's no one right cover uh, for all books. Uh, but sometimes they leave the buying journey early because they're like, shut up and take my money. Right. If they've already read the first two books in your series and they see that book number three is out in the series, the conclusion of the trilogy, they already know you, they already know the other books, they are sold just with the spine. They see the title of the book, they see it's uh, book three in the series, they already know if they've read the first two, and then they're like, done. I'm sold. So you don't have to walk through every single one of these steps. They're not going to flip open to some random page in the middle to decide to buy uh, your book. But if you're just getting started, if you are unknown, if your book is unknown, if it's your first novel in your series, you really are going to have to walk people through all of these steps while they're trying to decide whether or not to take a risk on you. And you have to earn your way from each step to the next. So no one's going to look at your cover if they don't full first pull the spine of the book off of the shelf. And it doesn't matter how good your writing is if no one ever sees it, like I said earlier. Now, this is just the first decision, though. So this is what makes them actually a buyer of your book. But there's a ninth step. And this is just as important of a step. And the ninth step is that the customer becomes a reader. So deciding to buy a book is not the same thing as deciding to read a book. I would venture to guess that for the average book buyer in America, the median book buyer, uh, they only start about half the books they buy and they only finish about half of the books they start. So of the books on their bookshelf, they've only finished 25% 
of those books. Now, this ratio shifts depending on what kind of reader that they are. So the more books they read in a year, the higher their completion percentage is going to be. So somebody who reads 300 books a year, chances are they bought you know, between 300 and 350 books a, uh, a year. They're, they're completing uh, you know, maybe 90%, 95% of the books that they start. Whereas for the person who buys 10 books in their lifetime, they may only finish one of those books in their lifetime, right? They're not a big reader. So, so it sh uh, the kind of reader they are kind of determines how likely they are going to be to uh, finish your book. And now some of you may be like, well, I don't care if they read my book. I just care if they buy my book and I get their money. And I will say, if that is your thinking, that is very short-sighted because ultimately what makes a book a success is word of mouth. It's buzz. It's people telling their friends, you've got to read this book because I want to be able to talk to you about it. And they send their friend. So the person goes through this buying journey and they found your book spine out. They'd never heard of you before. They took a risk on it. They read it and they loved it. Then, and because they finished it and they, they loved it and they go tell their friends, you have to go buy this book. Their friends are walking straight to that section of the store and they're pulling that book off and they're taking it straight to the um, cashier because they've already made the decision. They've already made the buying decision before they came to the bookstore because of the recommendation of their friend. Now, maybe they're on the fence, right? Maybe their friend tells them to go check it out or they heard a friend talking about a book and they're at the bookstore like, oh, this is the book I heard my friend talking about. And then they, they go through all the steps again because maybe they don't trust their friend quite so much, right? I have friends where if they recommend a book, I will buy that book and I'll read it next because those friends have a proven track record of recommending the kinds of books that I like to read. And I have other friends, they recommend books and I'm much more suspicious of those books. And I'll do a lot more due diligence on the book to see if it's worth my time and my money. But ultimately, you have to convince them again. There's a whole other sales process that happens in their house, right? There's convincing them to put the book on the nightstand, right? And this, uh, and then convincing them to put it at the top of the stack of the nightstand. So a lot of uh, people who read, they'll have two or three books on their nightstand. And if your book is not at the top of the stack, they may never get to it, right? They'll finish a book on the top, they'll put a different book to replace it. And if your book, you know, you kind of have to earn your way. And this is where the title and the subtitle and the cover really come in to play because they have to continue selling the book, continue convincing the reader the book really is as awesome as it looks so that they then will finish it. So I, so I know kind of we wish in a perfect world all books had just plain white covers and people were forced to read our books, but do you really want to be a textbook author? <laughs> like, is that really what why you're in this because uh, you want to write textbooks? Because that is how textbooks work, right? People are forced to or compelled to. Uh, again, you know, students may be forced to purchase the textbook, but that doesn't mean they read the textbook. Um, but ultimately, and at least I'm hoping most of you are wanting to write the kinds of books that are worth talking about, the, the kinds of books that change people's lives and specifically change their lives for the better. Uh, so kind of some final thoughts. Um, if you do want me to break this journey down for uh, online customers, I can do that. Uh, but a lot of the steps are the same, right? So the back cover copy, all of the elements of the back cover are on the page on Amazon. Uh, they encounter them in often the same order. They, they see the title and the big pile of books. They see a very small thumbnail of the book. They click on the thumbnail, shows them a bigger version of the thumbnail, then they go down and read the text. Uh, one difference with the online um, is that there are reviews are a key part of the online journey. Um, both in whether or not they 
learn more, right? The more reviews a book has, the more likely somebody is to click on the book to find out more. Uh, and also the more reviews a book has, the more uh, likely people are to buy the book. So the number of reviews is really important when selling the book online. It's almost completely unimportant when selling the book in a physical bookstore. Your book either has a handwritten review from one staff person underneath the book or an uh, algorithmically uh, selected review underneath the book at an Amazon bookstore, or it has no reviews, and none of the other books have reviews either. Uh, so I hope this has helped you kind of understand the process, understand why uh, and where these different steps are important, and, and it helps you understand why the back cover is important and kind of where, you know, perhaps if your book is not selling, you can go back to this customer journey and say, uh, and, and perhaps with somebody else looking at it, right? Because sometimes you need a third-party perspective. You know, where are people getting lost? You know, what at what point are people like they're tracking with me, and then they see the back cover, and then what is it on the back cover that's turning people off? And and sometimes we don't have eyes uh, to see that ourselves. And having somebody else who can, you know, look at our book, look at our cover, look at our categories, all of those things, and kind of give us that uh, perspective. Which, by the way, uh, there are some slots left, in, as I'm recording this anyway, in the mastermind group. So if you're wanting that outside perspective and you're wanting people to encourage you but also to give you that uh, impartial feedback, do check out our patron levels at patreon.com. The $50 level and the $100 level come with a private mastermind group with you and up to nine other authors and me where we talk about your book and how to make it successful. There's uh, The $50 group is for unpublished authors and the $50 group is for published authors. And we'll be talking about a lot of these principles. And if you have a book launch coming up, we will be looking at your book very closely, making sure that all of the boxes are checked and your book has its best chance uh, to do very well. Uh, our sponsor today is the five-year plan for becoming a best-selling uh, novelist. This is uh, the very popular plan that I created with award-winning, in fact, Hall of Fame author James L. Rubart. Um, and it's a step-by-step -step guide through the first five years of your writing career. And it focuses a lot on craft. Uh, it's the most craft-focused thing that I have. And I'm glad I do it with James Rubart because he is a master. He, well, he's in the Hall of Fame, which is a big deal because he's pretty young for a Hall of Famer. He's got a lot of years of writing uh, ahead of him. But we talk about what to do and when to do it to have your best chance uh, for success. And uh, we've gotten just really great feedback from that course. And, of course, patrons get that course for 50% off. You can find out more at authormedia.com slash courses. And speaking of patrons, uh, our featured patron today is Deborah B. Diaz, who's the author of Women of Sin. Alicia of Athens is sold into slavery during the turbulent reign of Tiberius Caesar. When she runs away, she finds herself in the middle of the battle-torn land of Palestine, where her life is forever changed. And you can find out more uh, about Deborah Diaz's book, Women of Sin, in the show notes. And if you're curious about becoming a patron, whether at the big levels to give you access to the mastermind group or at one of the smaller levels where you help keep the show on the air, all of it is appreciated. And if you can't afford to become a patron, that's okay. You can still help the show. One of the best things you can do to help the show that doesn't cost you any money is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, leaving a review will help other people uh, discover the show, and it really helps uh, the word spread. So I really appreciate all of you who have left reviews. We've had a lot of reviews over the years, uh, and I really appreciate each one of you who've left a review. Uh, Apple, though, is expecting constant reviews coming in to keep a uh, podcast well-ranked. We are in the baby landing zone, or we're approaching 
the baby laning zone. My wife is due in a little over uh, two weeks. In fact, I was talking with my dad today, and he said, if your your due date uh, was the same as your baby's due date, you were born today. <laughs> so I came a little bit early. I was in a, I was in a hurry, I guess, uh, to uh, see the sun and, and uh, join the world. Uh, but uh, so just to let you know, um, I'm going to be doing kind of a mix of pre-recorded new episodes, and we'll be doing some reruns, kind of a best of novel marketing uh, podcast because I want to be able to spend some time uh, with my wife and our new baby. And I'm excited to, I'm really starting to get excited about meeting the new baby, finding out uh, whether it's a boy or a girl. So we have uh, waited. So the doctors know, but we don't know. It's uh, my wife's motivation. <laughs> to, it's the surprise at the end. It's the, it's the prize at the end of going through labor. She gets to find out uh, what it is. And it also allows us to pick out twice the name. So my wife is very um, passionate about names. She's studied baby names and etymologies since she was a child and had a list of names. And uh, so uh, waiting to find out allows us to have two names in the running. And no, I'm not going to tell you what they are. No one knows what they are. We haven't breathed a word uh, to anyone uh, of any, well, well, that's not true. We've read the word to one person, <laughs> but uh, other than that, no one knows what the options are. And even that one person doesn't know what all, all of the options are. So anyway, I appreciate all of you. Um, I will still be around. I'll still be doing the patrons only episode and I'll be available on the Facebook group. I'm just trying to get things kind of structured so that if something were to happen, like with the last baby, we were in uh, the ICU or the, the NICU, the neonatal ICU, uh, for a few days. And I, I don't want that to disrupt uh, the podcast feed. So don't go away. You're welcome to skip the reruns if you've already heard them. Uh, but some of these are classics from a really long time ago, and you'll hear a very different level of audio. <laughs> so do forgive uh, the old audio. I've learned a lot about podcasting over the last... Um, since 2013, so the five years, six years of podcasting. Uh, we've learned a lot, and the quality has is, is really improved. But anyway, I appreciate all of you. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I will be back with live episodes in uh, the new year. Uh, if you have a question you want me to answer on a future episode, uh, feel free to give us a call. We have a listener helpline. You can call from your cell phone if you're the kind of person who likes to talk on the phone. The phone number is 512-827-8377. It's a voicemail line, and you can just leave an audio recording of your question there. It won't be live. I won't be answering it, so don't worry. You won't be put on the spot. Or if it's easier for you, you're very welcome to pre-record a, a question and upload it at authormedia.com slash contact. So it's always fun to have uh, listener voices live on the air. I realize uh, that it's a, it's a little intimidating to have your question on the air, but I, I do appreciate everyone who sent in questions. Uh, Y'all really help make the show uh, better and more fun for everyone. Uh, you've been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you innovative ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. Thanks for listening.